0: Welcome to FraserCast, a place where we discuss all things autism, mental health, and special needs. Today we're discussing the increased demand for early interventions and intensive services, including how Fraser's therapists work with families who come from a bilingual home, and how Fraser helps families from all backgrounds recognize when occupational therapy may be needed for their child. To help guide our discussion today, we welcome two of our fantastic Fraser staff, Christina Doyle. A speech language pathologist and Dana Fernandez, a licensed occupational therapist. Thank you for joining us on FraserCast. So Christina, let's start with you, please. Uh, and Fraser, of course, is an organization that serves a variety of individuals from various cultures. This means of course that Fraser supports bilingual family, families where English is not the first language. So before we discuss how Fraser supports and works with such families, let's begin with some basics. So how would you, Christina, define bilingualism?
1: Well, thanks, Dave, for having me on the podcast. Um, I am currently a Spanish and English bilingual therapist, and I have native fluency in both languages. Um, So as a practicing bilingual speech-language pathologist, a lot of what I do is really go back to um, identifying if a child is bilingual in the first place. Um, And to me bilingualism really has a fluid definition. So more historically our definition of bilingualism has been a child that is able to acquire a person that is able to acquire um, one or more languages specifically two. Um, And so we do have two different segments of types of bilingualism and we have sequential bilingualism which is just um, when a child learns one language and then learns a second language later in life and then um, that differs from semi- simultaneous bilingualism, which is when a child is exposed to two languages at the same time. And so this is actually something that was that I learned in grad school and, and even in undergrad uh, and have been used as definitions as such. But I think as I've uh, worked on my skills as a clinician, my bilingualism uh, terminology has morphed into more of Uh, continuum. So thinking about um, a child that is just exposed to languages on a daily basis.
0: That's interesting. That's a nice nuanced sort of uh, distinction. So given that definition that you just gave us, how is language development different among different bilingual children Mm -hmm. or how they experience bilingualism?
1: Yeah, that's a great question too. Um, So typically a child will have or traditionally I should say will have that extra exposure um, from a second language at home in terms of their parents having um, another language either it's one parent or the other or both um, can speak two languages Um, but we also have seen more recently with the introduction of immersion schools that children can also acquire them at home so some children attend Spanish immersion schools or um, Japanese immersion schools and those type of um, cases are very interesting because the parents don't necessarily know that second language Um, they actually just the child just acquires it through um, school programming so um, that is typically how we see uh, bilingualism develop and then also um, in terms of the actual language development criteria and how they how they um develop language skills as opposed to their monolingual peers, those are actually pretty consistent. So we've seen that bilingual children tend to actually uh, acquire um, language, both languages at the same time. And again, historically, it's seen as, you know, the bilingual child would learn a first language or second language a little bit more delayed just because of their brain trying to process both languages. But now, A lot more research is showing that the developmental milestones actually hit around the same time. So about 12 months, we'll see the first word, you know, combinations of words at 24 months, etc.
0: So are those the time markers when a parent or a caregiver might start seeking speech therapy services?
1: Yeah, and it gets a little tricky because um, the way that we also measure language development is by the number of words that the child has. So some parents might say, you know, my child only has 50 words in English, but they have no words in Somali. Um, And in that case, that actually might not be a language delay. It might be just because they're more exposed to English than they are exposed to Somali. Now, if the the child is exposed continuously to both languages, and the child um, has 25 words in Somali, and... 10 words in English that might be a cause of concern. So at that at that rate we would typically start to see maybe a potential language delay, um, depending on the child's level of exposure. Um, and so I always tell parents count the number of words together. So if a child has 25 words in Somali and 25 words in English, count them together as 50 words and at that point the child, if that child's, you know, communication um, criteria is 50 words, then that is, that is right where they should be at. So it's always counting those number of words together.
0: Interesting. I wonder, Christine, at this point, if you would have an example for us, of course, we don't need details or names or anything, but that parents and caregivers might better be able to sort of make sense of how this works in real life, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a story?
1: Yeah. Um, so I've had multiple instances where we see the traditional language delay where a parent comes in and they're concerned because not only has their child not progressed in English, but they've also not progressed in the home language. Um, Specifically, I can think of so many Spanish and English bilingual children with which this is the case where parents are saying, you know, at home, they're not listening or they're not, you know, understanding what I'm saying, they're not expressing their wants and needs, but then at school, you know, the teacher's reporting the same problem. Um, and so sometimes parents don't catch that, is that especially if they're monolingual uh, in one language or the other. So um, I can think of a lot of my Spanish-speaking families, You know, parents are monolingual in Spanish. And so they'll say, no, in English, it's perfect. And then once I do my assessment, we'll see some delay there and we'll see it in, Eng- in Spanish as well. So in that case, that's a really big con- a red flag for me that services are warranted. Um, but I've also, most recently, had another case where um, I had a child who was um, having perfect English skills at school, uh, teacher was not really concerned, maybe some mild deficits here and there, and then Spanish was completely gone. Um, and what was most interesting is that Spanish was actually the first language that the child acquired so in that instance we actually call it language attrition and that's when a child is just constantly getting input from english and learning so much english that their spanish or their second language or their first language i should say actually kind of starts drifting away and the Uh. and and even if the child the child is still exposed to it at home their brain is just not catching up enough Mm -hmm. um In instances like that, um, services actually really haven't been warranted if the child is within formal limits for English because that's a part of bilingual processing. That's just a a part of um, bilingual learning, how the child is learning both languages. But um, thankfully, most of my kids on my case would have been a clear case of where their English is mildly delayed and I still um, qualify them for services because I think it's important for them to learn that base language of Spanish to develop those skills in English.
0: I'll just repeat myself here. This is more complex than I imagined uh, and on your end to evaluate a child it strikes me as tricky if not difficult because almost any child irrespective of needs special or otherwise who's going through a bilingual experience these sort of these sorts of phenomena will occur, right? Languages will squeeze each other out and uh, it's, it's tricky to evaluate. So uh, uh, tell us a little bit more about how you do that, how, how you make an assessment.
1: When it comes to assessing a bilingual child, um, again, very, very tricky, um, especially if you're a monolingual clinician. So in this case, you know, of course, uh, right now the American speech language hearing association has a really big stance on using bilingual clinicians first, before we go to a, to an interpreter, um, uh, because bilingual clinicians do have this experience with being able to assess these children because they have this language knowledge. Um, but the thing is that, uh, it, a lot of the field, um, with our graduate studies, we just aren't there yet in terms of actually um, providing that education that bilingual clinicians need to know what types of assessments to use. Um, you know, what, what is the difference between that standardized and non-standardized test for these children that are bilingual and coming from these households where they're exposed to multiple languages and so um, thankfully, uh, something that I did in my graduate uh, studies was to get an advanced certificate in bilingual speech language pathology. And so this was actually a separate program outside of my graduate program where I was able to learn these types of assessments and, and really how to select and, and pick and, and um, identify difference versus disorder. And so I'm really thankful that I got to do that because it made my job so much easier now, especially with my bilingual caseload Um, And so something that I do is I tend to take a language assessment that has some sort of like open questions, open-ended questions. And for us, the clinical evaluation of language fundamentals. So um, that's the self, it's one of the most common um, language tests on the market right now. And so uh, one of the subtests from that test is called the formulated sentences subtest. And it actually asks the child to create a sentence based on when given a word and then given a picture. Um, And so they have to use the word and make a sentence about that picture to describe it. Um, And the reason I love using that test is because it shows me a multitude of things. It shows me how the child is able to construct sentences in English and Spanish, how they're able to use uh, words and actually understand the definitions of words in English and Spanish, how they're able to um, use grammatical structures and embed them in both English and Spanish, and so, I love using that, that's one of my favorite things to do, because we know that if I were to give a whole standardized test, a lot of those tests are not currently, um, the data, the normative data isn't actually based on bilingual children, it's based on monolingual English speakers. Gotcha. Um, So I do that, and then I'll take a communication sample. Um, There are these uh, like picture cards created by by Columbia University. and it's called the school-age language measures, and it's just these pictures where you know where we ask the child to sequence them and then tell us the story and give us a narrative of what happened. And narratives are a fantastic way to um, really assess bilingual children because they allow them to just go off on you know their creative mind and then again creating these grammatical structures and words and sentences and. Um, using specific words in both languages, um, and then answering questions, like critical questions, so thinking about theory of mind. What is that person thinking? Why does he feel that way? Those things are also really important to check um, in both languages to make sure that the child is acquiring the language in a developmentally appropriate way.
0: That sounds like a very thorough assessment, but let's jump to treatment now, and when you talk about treatment, Christina, please address the current world we live in, which is a pandemic world where, just like we are right now, we're on a on, on a Zoom call, uh, and talk about the special challenges that may bring for a caregiver. Yeah,
1: of course, uh, and it really depends on the age of the child. I'm going to put that out there as well. Um, with our little ones, um, you know, I really depend on the caregiver for a lot of assistance. So a lot, um, so all of the therapy that we are currently doing at Frazier is via via telehealth, and so. Um, yeah, it, with our parents, it, it really takes a lot of uh, coaching and educating caregivers about language development for bilingual children, and I always encourage the um, caregiver to use the language they're most comfortable with, especially if they're a monolingual Spanish speaker, definitely exposing the child that way, and then I kind of pitch in and, and, and code switch to English and give them both, the best of both worlds, really give them um, that vocabulary in both English and Spanish. So for those little ones, um, I tend to, you know, embed a lot of my goals into play, and have children request in in Spanish, or have them comment on something in Spanish, or label something in Spanish. And then again, having their parents model that language in Spanish. So like, this is the blue car, this is a carro azul, or like, you know, continuously modeling sentence structures, developmentally appropriate sentence structures. And for my older kids, uh, it gets a little bit more trickier, but actually it's a lot more fun for me because I get to actually engage them into activities where I always say, you know, whenever I'm speaking to them, I always say it in English and Spanish. I want to make sure that they're getting that language input and the same sentence structure in English and Spanish so they can learn those new vocabulary words and kind of mend those languages together because we know that one language, their first language actually really impacts the way that they learn the second language. So, you know, I use a lot of activities like books in English and Spanish. We'll always switch off every week on which, which language we really focus on. Sometimes we focus on both. Um, and then I, I use a lot of um, activities like picture sequencing and things like that that I know are going to be beneficial to help the child succeed.
0: Great, great. So uh, what are some strategies for parents care, or caregivers who are raising a child in a bilingual home?
1: Again, language modeling, very important. Wherever your child is at, we always use the one plus rule. So,
0: Christina, before you go on, language modeling, do you want to describe yes. it?
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. So language modeling is just um, really uh, commenting or using language for various functions and showing and, and verbally communicating with the child uh, across all of these functions. So for example, you know, when when they want a fruit snack. If you're able to say, oh, I see you want a fruit snack. You could say, I want a fruit snack. And then okay. giving them those models um, and saying it in Spanish too. So I always say it like, um, I want the car, yo quiero el carro. So I'll always say it in both so that they get that. And if the, again, if the parent is more comfortable with one language or another, I always focus on making sure the child or the um, adult is using that one um, language with them. Same thing with commenting. So like, uh, yo veo el carro azul. I see the blue car. Um, or even asking questions. ¿Por qué está así? Why is, he, why is he like that? Or why is he there? ¿Por qué está allí? So really, again, kind of code switching, using those. And also introducing the concept of um, Spanglish. That is very common right now in households. And code switching is 100% appropriate. So sometimes I do that with my with my kids too, where I'll be like, "Oh, get token board, is, What token board do you want?" Um, and that and that's okay. That is that shows, um, you know how the child is. That's even better because that shows how that your child is able to literally switch between the languages and know what's appropriate. So that's a big strategy that I always uh, send home for parents. And then you know also, um, reaching out if they feel that there's a potential language delay somewhere. So if, you know, they are only a monolingual Spanish speaker and their child is showing really good Spanish skills, but then the teacher starts saying, you know, thinking about concerns and things like that, that might be a time where maybe, um, you know, the parent could reach out to another family member that's familiar with the English language and be like, can you, you know, tell me more about how my child is speaking in that language or vice versa, Um, because sometimes, parents miss out on their, and they hear from teachers that their, their, their child has a language delay, but in reality, it might be language attrition or some sort of other function that's going on. They might even be an English language learner, which is another type of uh, bilingual process where, you know, a child is perfect in Spanish, but then at school, their English skills are still developing and that's not a disorder. So those are the two bigger, bigger strategies that I tend to, to tell parents
0: about. Great. See, Christina, I'm sure there are a number of bilingual homes in the Twin Cities in Minnesota, of which I would never come close to naming. I, I I don't I don't know which what they all could possibly be, uh, even if I guessed. Uh, so, how does an organization like Fraser serve the needs of all these many different bilingual families? Are there Christinas in every language that that would seem to be extraordinary, uh, or can or can you as Christina aid you know? bilingual multilingual families equally
1: yeah, um you know of course, as always, I would love to have more bilingual clinicians in the field right now, approximately eight percent of our speech language pathologists are um bipoc or you know um from bipoc backgrounds, so cultural and linguistically diverse backgrounds, and you know of course that's upsetting to hear because we have uh that's not really you know uh Reflective of the population in America, there are so many cultures and so many linguistic uses of la- of everything. Um, there's so many languages, and so um, I think the number one benefit is to, of course, get more bilingual speech language pathologists hired at Frazier and also more BIPOC um, speech language pathologists as well. Because I think about the cultural aspect, where a lot of our parents are saying, you know, I would. I really wanna work with someone that gets to know me culturally and that is able to uh, reciprocate some of the cultural practices because language isn't just language, it's also cultural, there's a cultural element of language. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is uh, the best way I think that Fraser could really implement these practices. And then, you know, of course, I have done as much as I can do in terms of getting our, you know, our bilingual speech therapists and occupational therapists and physical therapists um, the best uh, way in which to provide treatment, because uh, you know now we can ourselves provide bilingual treatment rather than using an interpreter. So that has been, I think, a, a great change and and uh, you know, a very important change to be able to provide these services to the to the to the greater Twin Cities community.
0: Thank you, Christina. This has been really fascinating and very helpful. But we're going to move the conversation now to Dana and the world of occupational therapy. And like we did with Christina, let's begin with some basics. So Dana, what do you mean by occupational therapy?
2: Hi everyone, thank you for having me here. I am looking forward that this um, podcast is gonna definitely inform a lot of the uh, Frasier community. Um, But going back to your question, what is occupational therapy? The way that I like to describe it is that occupational therapy is helping people across the lifespan, engage in daily activities that are meaningful and purposeful to them. When working with children, occupational therapists will work with the family to determine what daily activities, or as we like to say, occupations, the child may be having difficulties with and begin to address those occupations so that the child may begin to conduct their daily routines and live life to the fullest. Daily activities or occupations in a child can include play, mealtime routines, self-care, self-care such as dressing, sleep, hygiene, and participation in school, engaging in reading, writing, handwriting, and interactions. Overall, occupational therapy will work with the family to assist the child in participating in meaningful activities.
0: So Dana, it, this seems, thank you for that. Uh, fairly obvious when you when I hear you um, how occupational therapy could help a, a family or benefit a child, but uh, I'd ask you to describe that a little more, but also a question that we uh, talked with Christina about, which is uh, time markers, if you will. At, at what point in a child's life, age, uh, should a, a caregiver be aware of, you know, perhaps uh, needs or something isn't uh, going quite what they uh, the way they planned or hoped. Or h- how does a caregiver recognize this?
2: Yeah. So I usually tell my families, and I've told tell- told everybody this: a child is never too early to receive services. You're having babies in the NICU receiving services. You're having a person that's 99 years old still receiving services. So. As a parent, I'm not a parent, but trust your parent instinct. If you see that something is not right in your child, if you see that they aren't doing things that they should be doing for their age, or you're seeing something unusual, seek for assistance, talk to your physician, maybe go online. I know that maybe um, accessing the internet is not something for everybody that can do, but the internet has so much information. I usually tell my families, you know, Going to the CDC website, they actually have a developmental milestone checklist, which you can start to determine. Okay, my child is two years old. They should be doing these different skills already. So let me see what they are doing or what they're not doing. Oh my goodness, they aren't doing half of these. So take that list, take whatever concerns you have, take notes of that, bring it to your physician. Maybe you could talk to somebody in the school if your child is in school and ask, you know, this is what I am seeing in my child. I hear about occupational therapy. Do you think that maybe my child could be referred to an occupational therapy? Could you please help me put in a referral so I can complete that OT evaluation? You don't lose much. You just maybe lose that one hour of your time, but at least you can get all of those doubts out of your head if occupational therapy will be beneficial for your child or not.
0: That's great advice, trust your instincts. I mean, that's just beautiful advice. But everything you described is some form of communication, even if it means just going on a website, which might not uh, have any sort of uh, language other than English. So uh, let's turn this into a discussion about bilingual families and, and challenges that they may face with occupational therapy. Um, th- everything you just described, Dana, apply to bilingual families or are there special challenges?
2: Actually, with the CDC, there is um, the developmental milestone in a Spanish version, so that is definitely something that, you know, um, Spanish families, Spanish-speaking families can look into. Um, I would want to say, you know, there's Hmong, there's Mandarin, There, there are all the languages you can possibly think of that is translated from English to that language, but sometimes It's not like that. Um, I think things are getting so much better now. You know, you are seeing apps um, that you could use on the tablet that is actually in Spanish. You are seeing a lot of YouTube videos that are in Spanish now. I feel like a lot of, you know, um, medical websites have, you know, an English version, a Spanish version, or maybe a Somali version. So I think things are getting a little bit better um, in that aspect. One thing that I have come to learn, at least with the Latinx community, is that we don't not we don't always have that education. You know, we didn't go to school, high school. Maybe we don't have a degree. So when these families are like, "What is going on? You're telling me something about occupational therapy. I don't really understand that." To me, a doctor dentist is a doctor, the physician is a doctor, the nurse I consider a doctor, so let me tell them everything that is going on with my child that's why it's so important to start just you know letting people know our whole community what is occupational therapy what is speech therapy what is physical therapy and giving them that education and spreading the word I feel like things now have gotten a little bit better with awareness of what is occupational therapy. I felt like when I was in grad school I'm getting my degree it wasn't something that was much heard about but I think as a community we're definitely getting there and making more awareness of those professions and services that are available for families.
0: You used the word community there, Dana. I'd like us to explore a little more. I'm thinking about a community of certain uh, immigrant population. Uh, I could imagine myself being moved into a a different culture to be reticent to go out and seek help. Uh, Maybe to be afraid or just, I don't know know what to do. I don't understand how the world works in this new world where I live. to what degree is that a challenge, and uh, how would you address that? And I think, Christine, I'm going to pull you back into that uh, discussion, too, because it it, it's, it it sounds important to me given the discussion that we're having. So uh, how, how would you address that?
2: Yeah, um, hopefully I am understanding your question correctly. Um, but I, you know, community is so important. Um, when you're communicating with your coworkers, with your friends, with your family, making sure that you're establishing that communi- communication from the beginning. Um, I know sometimes it's not possible. Um, you know, you don't maybe have um, access to a telephone or the internet, or maybe your hospital is miles and miles away. So to ever get in contact you know, with a health professional might be difficult. But as a community, I think we are all getting together, you know, whether that is the neighbor, whether that is the cousin that lives, you know, two blocks down the street and kind of letting them know, like, hey, this is what's going on. These are things that I'm seeing. And I feel like one of those persons that you kind of communicate with um, will tell you, hey, actually, I just saw this the other day, or I learned about this on the radio or on the TV how about you try doing this, you know, Um, like I said, open communication, having that communication, not being scared. I think we all know a person that we definitely trust and that one person can definitely help us figure out how to confront these challenges.
0: You you answered my question better than I asked it. So thank you for that. That often happens in these podcasts. Christina, I see you nodding your head. Uh, Do you want to jump in?
1: Yeah. Um, I think Dana brings up great points about really using the community as a resource and I think especially in the Latinx community, um, uh, you know, I I don't know if I speak for Dana as well, but we're just a very close-knit community. We, I think, uh, you know, I think about the Latinx community here in the Twin Cities. I grew up in the Latinx community in the Chicago suburbs and um, growing up, that was, uh, you know, always our source of uh, finding information about our child's development. And that was always the um, people that we went to for help. And I remember, you know, even being a teacher's aide and one of my first jobs in a, in a summer job in a school district. And all of these Hispanic families would come up to me and say, you know, can you translate this for me? Or c- come to the office with me and translate this for me? Or, you know, help me find a daycare for my child? Uh, because because culture matters and really, you know, you're going to go to somebody that you feel most comfortable with as a professional. And so I'm seeing this with my families to this day where sometimes I have to really push my role as a speech language pathologist and really go past some of my uh, work responsibilities because parents feel most comfortable going to me. And even Uh, sometimes I've had a parent where they've missed services with another clinician but then they come to my services all the time and I want to say that I feel that it's because of that cultural component the fact that I'm able to connect with them on not just that linguistic level but also be able to connect with them about the community and 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 things like that and for my children especially on my caseload it feels so comfortable for them because I'll be like I went to that taqueria or I went to that paleteria and like they feel like I'm one of them so that's that's also uh, part of part of the work that we
0: do. Awesome, thank you. Uh, Dana, circling back to occupational therapy and as we did with Christina, uh, can you tell us what occupational therapy might look like, a typical session? And again, if you could answer that within the context of the pandemic world we live in and maybe extra obligations that places on a caregiver at home.
2: Yeah, so if we're thinking just about right now um, going into if we are ever giving the chance to go back into the clinic, mm-hmm. um, and then I'll st- uh, speak a little bit of how it is definitely looking at too right now. But before the pandemic, um, a typical occupational therapy session—you know—you're walking right into the gym. You're seeing the swings, you're seeing the crash pads, you're seeing the trampoline, you're seeing all of these cool um, activities, toys that the child just wants to run and start jumping all over and engage in all of that. So for us, and I think um, a lot of occupational therapists will back me up on this, but it is so dear to my heart that engaging the child in play. Play is the number one occupation for children. It is through play that they are growing, that they are learning and developing all the the skills that they need to complete all of their other daily routines. so for me it's so important to just engage them in play um when we're addressing some of that dress angles or whether we are trying to address some handwriting um you know you want the kid to come back to you you want to make that experience so enjoyable, unforgettable, letting them laugh, letting them build onto those memories so that they are working hard so that they know that, like, oh my goodness, I did such a great job. I want to come back next week and try that again. Um, so for me, I usually tell parents, you know, don't be confused. You might think it's just play, but it's not just play. We are, we are definitely trying to address those skills, uh, making them more um, finer, more advanced so that they then have those skills to perform their daily occupations.
0: Cool, cool, great.
2: And going back to how you said about um, the pandemic now, obviously not every family has a swing in their home, doesn't have a trampoline, doesn't have some crash pads. And this is, I think, the one time where I have told my families, this is your chance to be a kid again. Get into that kitchen, take out those food cans, get those kitchen utensils, Build some towers with those um, kitchen utensils, those food cans. Take out your cushions from your couch. Make an obstacle court, a a fort with your child, you know. Get down. Make it as messy as possible. There's no harm with that. Um, Nobody's seeing you, you know. No one is judging you here. Um, Your kid is just trying to learn from you. And just, if you can get them into just that play, like I said, if it's as enjoyable for them, it's going to be enjoyable for you. So what I in my sessions, it's been a lot of, you know, being in the kitchen, um, being in the living room, using some um, objects um, that, you know, families would be like, oh my gosh, we are using this. I'm not sure how we're gonna do it, but okay, let's give it a try. And then at the end, they're like, oh my goodness, Dana, you had so much great ideas. I am definitely gonna keep using this um, going forward.
0: That's great, I love that. Uh, So, Dana, Christina talked about modeling language. Uh, It just occurred to me that does modeling behavior uh, apply to occupational therapy uh, if I'm a caregiver? Any tricks?
2: Yes. Um, You know, children are always watching us. They're watching all the adults, what they're doing, especially their parents, because their parents are with them 24-7. So, yes, you know, behavior is something that, we in occupational therapy do address. um, Sometimes I like to tell my families too, you know, you might think it's behavior, but it it could be something else too. Something that we specialize in occupational therapy is sensory processing challenges. So I have told my families, you know, As a Latina myself, um, I've been raised, you know, in an environment where my mom has always thought, you know, it's behavior, she's doing a tantrum, it can't be anything else. So I have educated my family too, you know. Yeah, it might be that they're refusing to toothbrush, it might be that they're giving you a hard time, it might look like a tantrum, but it could be something else too. It could be that there are some sensory components where maybe they don't enjoy the flavor of the toothpaste or maybe the bristles in a toothbrush are unbearable for them in their mouth it could be motor skills maybe don't they don't have those precise fine gross motor skills to engage in toothbrushing it could be cognitive maybe they don't know the sequence of the steps of what am i supposed to do with this toothbrush with this toothpaste where do i even start do i put it right away in my mouth or do i turn on the water sink it could just be language social communication skills maybe what you're trying what you're telling your child to do brush your teeth they're not understanding that so i usually tell parents Every behavior that a child does is a way of communicating. It's a communication, whether that's verbal or nonverbal, and just always be attentive that whatever you're doing, children are watching you and they pick up pretty quick.
0: Those are great examples, Dana. Uh, And you got me thinking about outside the home, school uh, and perhaps friends, although we don't get to experience friends like we used to currently, but, uh, can you talk about school and uh, occupational therapy, and uh, maybe some of these things don't show up until a, a child's in school?
2: Yeah, um, I mean, where are you going to get a lot of that social interaction? Being able to learn how to share toys, how to take turns, um, how to, you know, um, build some of those communication skills. I think it it definitely happens a lot in school. You know, waiting to take your turn to speak, or waiting to take your turn. Um, or to go to the bathroom um so I have definitely um told families you know um they're going to learn a lot in school you know we're all we all come from different households some of us might be coming from better ones than others but school is definitely our getaway point you know we get to um enjoy time with friends that are the same age as us maybe we're sh- sh- sharing a lot of similarities together, um, talking about, you know, what did you see uh, over this weekend on TV? Oh my goodness, you like that cartoon? So do I. Um, So yeah, they are definitely picking up a lot of behaviors at school from their peers and even from, you know, teachers as well. Um, Something I've been also telling families too, I feel like now um, with things kind of with the pandemic, but even so, schools have started to, you know, even be giving tablets to kids um, as young as in kindergarten, in second grade, something that when I look back, I wasn't even getting that until maybe high school. So it's like, what can we control? What kids are seeing in the screen, you know, screen time is something so important that I keep telling families, you know, make sure that they're not spending their whole day in front of a tablet because there's so much things that are there that children will see. And then that's how they start picking it up. And I feel like a lot of my families have come to learn that because they're like, you know what, Dana? Yep, you're right. He, he began saying this to me and I heard it. I heard it from that show. So yeah. You know, children are not only trying to learn from adults, they're trying to learn from their peers, they're trying to learn from their teachers, but they're also trying to learn from what they're seeing.
0: Thank you. That's great. So, Christina, I want to circle back to you again, too, because we did not talk about school and peers with you in terms of bilingualism and these these sorts of challenges. Do you have anything to add?
1: Yeah, I think what Dana said is really right up the alley, especially adding in that communication portion. Um, I think that, you know, on top of child children being um, exposed to different languages at school. They're also exposed to the languages that children speak, that other children speak. So that's something that, um, you know, reminds me a lot of, like, for example, African-American vernacular English, or AAD, um, which is a type of dialect, actually, and now is kind of actually turning into a type of language. And so a lot of linguistics are uh, fighting about that, but, um, they're, so, you know, African American Vernacular English is a, is a type of dialect used in, primarily in the African American community, but we're actually seeing it in the Latinx community, we're seeing it in the white community, we're seeing it in the Black community, on top of that, um, in many, many, many communities, um, especially because children are acquiring language and dialects within themselves, and so, um, now that's something to consider as well, um, and I, I hope that a lot of speech therapists are also considering dialect when they're evaluating children.
0: Great. Well, Christina and Dana, we began this podcast by describing you as fantastic Fraser staff, and I think uh, that has been proved uh, during our discussion. This is very informative. I would like to thank you very much for your time today. Very enlightening conversation. And to our listeners, for more information on any of these topics and more, please visit Fraser at www.fraser.org. That's F-R-A-S-E-R.org for more information. And thank you all for listening and stay well.